Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Stage Door Johnny, or welcome to it. And if you haven't heard the first part of this chat with Emily Mortimer and Alessandra Navola that I recorded live at German Street Theatre in London just before Christmas, then do yourself a favour, go back and listen to part one, act one of this conversation, because it's good stuff and it doesn't disappoint in part two. We had just left it with Emily having had a traumatic experience playing Portia in A Merchant of Venice in Scotland, an experience from which she's still not quite recovered when it comes to the theatre. And this is where we pick up our chat. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the house for Act Two. Mr. Cake, Mr. Nivola, and Miss Mortimer to the stage for Act Two, please. And Miss Mortimer, please mind your head. So wait, if I, am I right in thinking, after Portia... <laughs> You didn't go back on stage until we did our play in New York. And that's the last time I went back into... Just a play called A uh, Parlour Song, which we did at the Atlantic Theatre. Yes. Freehander, you, me, and a a brilliant American actor called Chris Bauer. Yes. But it's so fascinating that you talk about this business of the intrusive thoughts and wanting to... To 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 screw it up. To call things out and wanting to screw things up because... Your dad, who had this amazingly interesting sort of relationship to performance too, right? He sort of always wanted to be a performer, yes, I think, and yeah. carried on doing his one-man show, Mortimer's Miscellany. Yes. I think until... <laughs> Nearly you know, until his, he dies, yeah. his final days. But do you remember when we went to the theatre with him? Yes. When <laughs> he was the chairman of the Royal Court. Yes. The chairman of the Royal Court, you know, the Royal <laughs> Court bastion of new writing in this country, you know, absolutely national institution. And John was the chairman... And we went to, in my memory, it's the opening night of Blasted, of Blasted by Sarah Kane. You know, which was, if anybody doesn't know, an incredibly formative theatrical experience in the late nineties. Yes, it would have been it... the sort of emergence of brutalist theatre. Sarah Kane, who tragically died very young, was was a real new voice in the theatre. It was a sort of unprecedented and incredibly in your face, and a, a difficult. Watch and do, do you want to tell this? Story? You tell it because you're better. I don't know if I. You, you. Well, I'll join in. You Please start. Join in. <laughs> so, the first, the first line of this play, we've all come to see this kind of event theatre because there's been some buzz about it. It's really divided, you know, people saying, "This is disgraceful. This is disgusting. It's so violent and extreme." And so we take our places for the first night. I'm sitting next to John, and Emily's on the other side, and. Um, a brilliant actor called Neil Dudgeon comes through the doors and goes, I've shut in better places than this. <laughs> to which John 
in his inimitably high treble, <laughs> says, Awfully witty line. <laughs> One of no coward's finest. <laughs> and from that moment on, there are two plays. <laughs> there is the extraordinary, you know, legendary performance of this thing that's going on. And there's an evening with John Mortimer <laughs> going on in the, where he was speaking his intrusive thoughts all the time, not yeah. all the time. And it was sort of not enough to interfere with the performance, but certainly enough that the rows around him were like, <laughs> it was a sort of live stream, it was a sort of DVD commentary <laughs> by John Mortimer on this incredible play. And there was a moment, wasn't there, where a guy was, a guy was lying, sort of like, sort of slumped underneath, uh, it was some sort of burnt out bombsite in Sarajevo or something. And uh, your dad said, your dad said, is he shitting or is he dying? <laughs> at which point, at which point, water came from the flies and sort of plopped onto his face and woke him up and went, oh no, he was only shitting. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was uncontrollably extraordinary. And I don't know about you, but I sat in this sort of rictus of sweaty, uh, horror, feeling for my fellow actors on stage, but also feeling like I was also witnessing sort of stereo history. Yeah, but his dad did that. That is actually really? in A Voyage Around My Father. He was basically copying his dad because oh, his really? he would take his dad to the to the RSC and um and as our dad did, no, he knew all the complete works of Shakespeare from start to finish, off by art. Right. But he always said that his dad would be a great help to the actors because he'd say the lines and he'd say them about three seconds before they got to them <laughs> very loudly in the front row because he was blind. And um, and that was like, and it was mortifying, I think, for no. our dad. But then, you know, oh, the sins of the fathers. I'll never forget it. He was the chairman of the theatre. That's what was so <laughs> But the other, great, the other great thing he did as the chairman of the theatre was he met Tom Cruise and Stephen Daldry on the, on the steps of the Royal Court Theatre and he had no idea because... Stephen Daldry was the artistic director at the time. Of course, my dad had no idea who Tom Cruise was, and he asked um, Stephen Daldry what he wanted to drink, and Stephen Daldry said a gin and tonic or something, and then um, Dad said, oh, and a, and a Coca-Cola for the little chap? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, God, I miss John all the time. Alessandro. <laughs> you, you went from Yale and you, you did some off-Broadway stuff, and then, but then you did a production of As You Like It at Williamstown with Gwyneth Paltrow, you playing Orlando, Gwyneth playing Rosalind, and then you were sort of quite soon catapulted onto Broadway playing opposite Helen Mirren in Tegania's Month in the Country. Well, you have the chronology a little backwards, no. which was that I... Only a, a few months after graduating from Yale, I was catapulted onto Broadway with Helen Mirren. There you go. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Is Paltrow downhill? Not necessarily. Uh, no, that was after like an eight-year hiatus. Oh, was it? From, God, I really from the theater. Yeah, so I take Wikipedia to tell I us. went. <laughs> no, I, I I went straight onto Broadway. What was way that? over my head. What do you remember of that production? What do you remember of Helen? Was she fierce? So she had just starred in Prime Suspect. Yeah. And I remember thinking that was like the best thing I'd ever seen oh. uh, on television. 
I guess it was on television. I can't really yeah, remember. It was, yeah, yeah. it was like the first serialized thing of any kind that I thought, oh, this is just totally brilliant. Like, I can't think of anything before that that was serialized mm. that I thought was cool. And that was just brilliant. And I really kind of had a crush on her. I didn't know at the time about her reputation as being like uh, someone in control of her, you know, one of the first sort of women of the theater to be in control of her own sexual destiny. Gosh. And that she could just like have any man she wanted. I mean, that was what her reputation was. And she sort of like cut a swath through all the kind of leading men of the time. And, you know, from Liam Neeson, yeah, all the kind of like studs or whatever. She just Mm. like took on and then cast aside. (laughs) And, you know, just really cool and really sexy. and. Once I was cast in in this part, which was in a month in the country, which was uh, uh, it's about uh, a woman who falls in love with the tutor of her daughter, and I was playing the tutor. And uh, once I was cast in the thing, I started doing my research, and I the more I started learning about her and everything, the more I was thinking, oh my god, she's just amazing, and like, <laughs> and she loves younger guys. <laughs> And like this could be something. You I, come, know? I come back to my very first thing about the, the theater being an aphrodisiac. I, I'm just going to, you know, rest my case. Look, Keep going. I was 22 sure. years old, She's Helen and um, and we got into the rehearsals, and I think I was pretty bad. I mean, I, I I'm pretty sure I was pretty bad <laughs> because uh, so the director who gave me my Broadway debut ended up like I've worked with multiple times and Still he, Ellis. yes. And he ended up directing me in the elephant man. Yeah. Um, and so I've worked with him since a lot, but at the time, like you can't have been that bad then. I was, ner- I was just really nervous and he, and I think he was n- even more nervous about me than I was about myself. And he was trying to kind of micromanage my performance and she, I remember her standing on the other side of him when he was giving me some direction. And I remember her going like, <laughs> whoa, whoa. Like saying, so, Alessandro like, is miming in one ear and out yes, the other. Yes. And <laughs> so it was interesting to me to hear that because what she was really saying was like, trust your own instincts. I, I wouldn't have put it in those terms at that time. But oh, like, she was sort of indicating to you to disregard what he was saying. Yeah, in one ear, out the yeah, other. Yeah, I'm sorry, I thought it like, meant don't you... pay any attention. Am I, am I just being very obtuse? To the I man th- behind the curtain. Got it. I thought you were implying that she was saying to Scott, he's not understanding what you're saying. But that's because... No, 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 no. no. She was saying to me, don't listen. Sorry. Just like, go for it. Right. Basically. Right. And And I, I didn't totally understand that that's what it meant. And I didn't even know how to interpret it like that at the time. But I did get some impression that she was telling me like, you kind of got this and huh. he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I took it as like, she likes me. Yeah. <laughs> She's making ear gestures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so then uh, I guess I grew in confidence as, as the play went on. Mm-hmm. And, I, and there was a scene where I had to take, you know, take her hand and kiss her hand and then kiss up her arm and everything. And, it got, you know, and then we were interrupted just before you know, it got really exciting. And... One night, I really kind of 
got carried away, and <laughs> and I I kind of bit her hand. Oh goodness me! And I remember it really well. She has a tattoo on her hand right here. There was like this little like weird little tattoo that they had covered up with makeup, and the makeup had just rubbed off a little bit, and that was where I bit her hand. <laughs> <laughs> and then like. It, you know, the play went on. I mean, I didn't like, not like a hurting her, but I just, I, you know, it was just like a Isn't love it? bite. You know what sure. I mean? Sure. Back to your furry animal beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and as the night went on, like it happened in a sort of, you know, it was probably the most spontaneous thing I'd done in the whole performance um, before or after that. And as the night went on, I... It, the, the spontaneity of it kind of wore off and I started like thinking back to that moment and wondering if that had been a good idea or not. Oh, God. And the longer the night went on, the more I thought maybe it wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> so then the next day we came into the theater and, she, you know, normally she'd always come in and be like, you know, hi, you know, how was your weekend and all, you know, all this kind of thing. And, and sort of, you know, she was very affectionate with everybody in the cast. I thought maybe a little more affectionate with me than other people. But, <laughs> She's only but, flesh and blood. Uh, you know, <laughs> and the next day she just like breezed by me and didn't say anything at all. And then the same thing happened the day after that and then the day after that. And I st so then three days had gone by and she really hadn't spoken to me. And I thought like, I was thinking back like in my dressing room at the intermission, what, what have I done? Like, what have I done? And then the hand bite, you know, <laughs> popped into my head and I was like, Oh my God, I, I bit her hand. <laughs> And she's pissed off and like, what, if, what an idiot. Like, why did I do that? Like, it was so stupid, you know? And so I sat down and I was like, okay, how do I fix this? And I wrote this like chivalric <laughs> letter to her that was like, dear Miss Mirren. Um, you know, yeah, you know, not yet. This yeah, is sure. long before sure. that. But you will be. I was overtaken in this moment. Oh, but, oh, the other thing was that, like, before that, leading up to that time, I used to go up to her dressing room, and there was a couch in her dressing room, and I would lie, I would, you know, I would lie out on this couch in her dressing room, <laughs> and kind of like, and she would sit over there, and she had her mirror in front of her, and she would sit at her, at her table with the mirror up, and she would flip through these pages of, of a magazine and then she would occasionally <laughs> look up in the mirror and see me like back on her couch, kind of like, like a hot you lunch. know, like staring at her. In this mirror <laughs> like and, and then that led up to the hand bite. And all anyway. And so then, <laughs> and so magnificent portrait of backstage life. Keep going. Now I just think like she was just tolerating me lying on her couch in her dressing room. Like, yeah, there must have been a scene from Lelio. She just wanted to sit and like read her magazine, but there was this guy like. <laughs> so anyway, so I wrote the note and, and I, you know, please forgive me for having nibbled on your. Uh, <laughs> Tattoo. On your hand. And I. You know, it, it just, you know, it came over me in this moment. And it, I know that it was like disrespectful. And, you know, I, 
I, I promise it won't happen again. And, and then I had my dresser. I said, you know, could you please transmit <laughs> this, <laughs> this <laughs> missive <laughs> to, to Miss Mirren? <laughs> and, and so, like, the dresser, like, took it up to her dresser, which was upstairs. And then I sat there just kind of waiting for the response. And then I heard from upstairs, like, a door swing open. And down she came, like, down the stairway and, and then slammed open my dressing room door. And she was there in her, like, corset, like, and I think nothing else. I mean, no, she had her, like, her underwear on and, like, but she was almost naked in her corset. And she slammed open the door and she had the, the note in her hand crumpled up. And she said, do you really? Take me for that much of a prude. <laughs> and she threw it in my, in my bin, in my dressing room, and slammed the door and walked out. I thought she was, it gonna, was never mentioned. Oh, that's magnificent. I thought she, you were going to say she's going to pin you up against the wall and finally you'd have your hell of a remote. That's fantastic. Cakey, can I ask you to tell, well, I don't know whether on your podcast, just talking of backstage life, mm. because it makes me laugh often to myself. And I just think it suddenly came to me the story of the, um, I shan't be making the metanoon. Can you tell them that? Because I just think, <laughs> has that been on no, stage door, Johnny? It, it really is the best story. And <laughs> it is a good indicator. A uh, no, but it's backstage yes, life. You're right. It's the you're sort right. of like, it's the sort of the best bit, in my opinion. Like if, if it was only the backstage life, I wouldn't be, I'd love doing plays because that bit is the sort of like the chaos and the mess and the kind right. of these slightly sort of sort of crazy, demented characters and everybody's just a, a mess. Just after I left drama school, I went to the RSC, which at the time was doing a year in uh, Stratford and a year in the Barbican in London. And I was doing, you know, as everybody does, sort of four or five plays and you're, you're, you've got one decent part and you're understudying everybody else. And <laughs> there was a guy who was a sort of Stratford lifer who'd been there for God knows, 30 years. And had once obviously been a fantastic actor, still was, but <laughs> had not been asked to exert himself for some decades. <laughs> and uh, he also liked to drink. And it was New Year's Day, and I happened to be clocking in with my pass into the stage door for the show on New Year's Eve, and uh, New Year's Day, and everybody was feeling a bit, you know, the worse for wear. And uh, I heard a voice message being played by the stage door manager and it was this guy he said hello this is my sister speaking <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I wish I was making this up I, I'm afraid I will not be able to make the matinoon this afternoon thank you <laughs> click that was it and I was like that I just have heard. I passed by at the exact moment that he said, hello, this is my sister speaking. It's just extraordinary. Um, wait, how did we get there? Yes, okay, listen, we've got to wind this up because it's Christmas and everybody needs to go and it's going to be Christmas Day soon. Listen, what's, what's the most important thing here that we haven't covered that we should? Okay, well, let's ask this. You, you, you talk about that, that amazing moment of 
suddenly something coming over you in the theatre and you end up biting the grand arm leading lady's pant. What we do on stage, but also, of course, on film and TV and everything else, what we do deals with these very complicated grey areas of human interaction, very complicated grey areas of human behaviour, human thought. You know, a lot of drama comes out of emergency, comes out of transgression, comes out of nothing that is safe or sanitized. As we are, you know, we all started doing this a while ago, but now we're in 2023. Are you concerned about how possible it is to be brave, to be unafraid in rehearsal rooms, to be free in what we do? Does it feel like we live in a culture now which is more inhibited about that stuff? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? How does it affect you artistically? That's really a hard question, but I, I, de- I think it's a good, cocktail. important question. Um, I do think that sort of, oh my God, it's also hard not to talk about it without sounding like very annoying, probably. But I do think that like, that especially the theatre is, maybe the theatre more than ever now, therefore, is like really important because it's a place where, people can be transgressive and have always been and and the kind of spoken words is i mean that's why you know in shakespeare's plays or whatever he always gave the sort of political things to the comics to the to the to the right. you know the, the bits that weren't written down where they could extemporize and say say kind of radical stuff and mm. and our dad was a was a was a playwright but he was also a, a a criminal defense barrister and he defended a lot of people that had done terrible things and and a lot of murderers and um he among the murderers, he liked right? murderers yes he thought right. murderers were the best kind of clients Sort of the earth well they generally got rid of the one person on earth that was sort of annoying them and therefore those kind of they were very well behaved mm. peace had descended but he said that no, that um, murder is the, a very human crime, and that we can all—it's something that we're all probably at some point mm-hmm. in a weird moment capable of. Whereas we might not sell drugs or sort of diddle our taxes, but that it's a human yeah. crime. And his his education to me and Rosie and and all our siblings probably was like, you can be a good person and kill someone and a bad person and never get a parking ticket. Obviously, you can be a terrible person and kill someone and a good person Mm -hmm. and never get a parking ticket too. But that kind of radical way of thinking and that sort of forgiving way of thinking is, I think, I think in order to be a good writer and a good performer, you have to think like that, as well as to be a good barrister. You Mm -hmm. have to be able to have a kind of to think that everybody deserves the right to a fair hearing, that every story, everybody's story deserves to be told. Macbeth's story deserves to right. be told just as much as Cordelia's story deserves to be told. And, and actually, in understanding Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and f- kind of feeling for them, mm. you are put more in touch with your own humanity. And, th- and that that's why plays are so important. And all of this is so important. And so in this moment where everybody's sort of feeling like because of this cultural moment that we're living in where we where we all have to sort of have a sort of stance on something and and everything has to be so black and white and we have, people are good or bad and there's you know a way to think that is right and a way to think that is wrong it's cool that there are kind of people that are writing plays and appearing in plays and putting on films or whatever that are trying to i do think people 
in our world are are battling that, yeah. and that that is yes. I, I think I don't feel like everybody's too frightened to sort of try to keep telling stories that are difficult and challenging and and hard. I I don't feel like I'm I'm despairing of. Mm. The arts is a place where where convers- difficult conversations can still right. happen. I don't know. That's, though. Well, that's very good. Would you be biting um, an actress's hand today? I mean, sure. uh, all I know is we're in the midst of a correction, and uh, it was it's a necessary one. And you know, cultures have to go to extremes to sort of fix problems, and that's kind of what's happening now. But it just sucks because, like, the end result is hopefully going to be wonderful but right now it's kind of sucky because you just feel like everything's political and i I, i'm not that into political theater or storytelling that you know is polemic and so i and and you almost can't pitch something you can't propose something you can't and and even if you're telling a story that isn't designed that way it's re-examined through that kind of a lens and so yeah in those ways like uh, it's oppressive but i'm sure out of that is going to you know come something better than what uh came before but sexual politics aside and you know all that i i still like feel like i missed the golden age of you know movies and and theater which was 60s and 70s. Are you excited to be back on the stage again? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it's been eight years or something since I did The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man almost killed me. I mean, mainly because... You did it for so long, in three different iterations. Yeah, we did it at the, at the Williamstown Theatre Festival, mm. which was like a summer stock thing that Bradley Cooper had asked me to do with him just as a, on a lark. Like, yeah. you know, we were just going to do it for a, a few weeks over the summer. And then it was a, a a hit there. And then he said, you know, how about we do it on Broadway? And then we did it on Broadway and it was a hit there. And then he was like, how about we do it uh, in the West End? It wasn't so much of a hit here. And he was like, how about we do it in Sydney? And I was like, no, <laughs> enough. <laughs> I mean, this could have gone on for years. And um, it nearly killed me. Like I, I, the production was sort of a beautiful production. It, he was phenomenal in it. Uh, I got my Tony nomination out of it, but it really was not one of the most enjoyable roles I've played. And I, it was kind of like it was painful after you know the eighth performance of the week. We were, at, but we were sharing a dressing room, and. You know, he has got some other thing going in his veins than I do. And it's the source of his incredible energy and drive and determination and success. And it's, you know, totally to be admired. But like when we were sharing a dressing room after the eighth show of the week and he was coming in saying like, you know, bro, do you realize how privileged we are to be doing this tonight you know and i was like like hollowed eyed and just like staring like i was like a shell of like a cadaver looking at myself in the mirror like i can't do it again i can't do it again and like he was like come on man this is you know we're gonna do this and i and uh you know 
and then once we got out there, like it was amazing doing the play with him. Talk about spontaneity. Like he insisted that it be different every single night. And it really was like mm. from night to night, the show was very different and our scenes were all really different. And it was like very exciting to, to act with him. And I'm a huge admirer of him, but there's a picture of us on our holiday, like finally when <laughs> yeah, the play yeah. was over. And I, M took it of me, and I'm like lying in this thing, and my head is, and I like there's drool coming out of my mouth, and I like my head is in an awkward position, and I, I think I slept for like 72 hours, and it made me kind of feel like I, I just needed a break. It's so exhausting. Um, I think I do want to do it. I, I would love to, Jules, and you're wonderful wife and I were saying well I was saying yesterday she said she'd like to do a play here and I said I'd do a play with Julianne here because this feels manageable this doesn't feel I feel like I might not shout something weird out Stella, I might not even think of it you're I, listening to this yeah. this is like it's just, it's just like a booking agency this podcast <laughs> this is fantastic but, I wonder if I get I, any kind I, of commission I did, when I, I was meant to do a play in Covid I, oh, really? I had been cast in a play by Nick Payne, that was to be directed by Tommy Cale, who directed um, Hamilton. Hamilton. And I was shitting it. And because it was on Broadway, and I was just like, I mean, I was literally thinking, I don't know, I've got to go to sort of like therapy and get lots of, I don't know, major drugs or something to be able to do this. Beta blockers. Yeah. Have you ever tried beta blockers? No, I probably should try beta blockers. People say that really does help. That really apparently does help. They wear off like everything else. I haven't tried them, but I think it's. What, during a performance? No, I just think think that your body gets, you know, if you're taking a long more and more. Anyway. anyway, I can remember the, the first, that, that March the 10th, when was it that, that COVID <clears throat> struck? And my first thought was, oh, thank God, I don't think I have to do that. <laughs> I felt like I'd been given a reprieve, yeah. But um, I can remember some nights with you um, and Chris doing Jez's play, because that really was an amazing play. And You were called a sly stunner. By the New York Times. Really? Sly stuff. Oh, well, God, that definitely makes me want to do another play. <laughs> but um, no, I do remember the feeling, because I've only scuba dived once, but I was very scared of that. And I remember doing with it, though. With Kiki, right? With Kiki. Oh, yes. In, in Australia. In Australia. Yeah. That's when we first met. Yes. The terrible film of Noah's Ark. Yes. With John Voight. We went to the Whitson Sunday Island. <laughs> yeah, John Voight was God. God his, dream, his dream part. Yeah, but, but his dream part. I remember the feeling of scuba diving. You're so scared, but you're in it together in that thing where you're not allowed to go up unless you all, ha- if one of you goes up, all of you have to go up and there's all these sort of hand signals and you kind of you have to look at each other in the eye you know and sort of do that and do that and I can remember thinking that slightly like there is a feeling when you're in a play with people where you're like it's a bit like that feeling of you it's kind of all for one and one for for all and you look into the other person's eyes and you kind of uh with them you know and you're taking each other you're sort of with each other sort of getting through this hellish thing and and it can be really wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've got to do it. But holy shit, man, it's so scary. But, but all good things are scary. Great. You heard it here first. Emily Mortimer, Julianne Nicholson, German <laughs> Street Theatre, uh, available for musicals. <laughs> I, I will take a small but meaningful commission. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Alessandra Nivola, Emily Mortimer. Well, bravo. 
Bravo, Emily and Alessandro. I could not have enjoyed that more. Oh, thank you so much, both of them, for, for giving me that time and doing that live performance. And I thought the spirit of Emily's dad, Sir John Mortimer, was really with us that night. The spirit of free speech, free inquiry, free thinking, all John's freewheeling devil-may-care and intellectual rigor, as well as just that sheer brio. I loved it. I thought it was just a lovely night. Listen, please stay tuned for news of more live shows, more live stage door Johnnies from German Street Theatre. One that I can tell you about when I think there's a few tickets left that's upcoming is Sunday, March the 3rd of this year, 2024, featuring the brilliant Jez Butterworth, playwright extraordinaire, and his leading lady of his last three plays, Laura Donnelly, Olivier Award-winning for his last play, The Ferryman, and the star of their new play together, The Hills of California, which is at the Harold Pinter Theatre. It will be wonderful to talk about their collaboration with them. Buy tickets if, uh, if you can. And keep an eye out for more live shows. My guest next week was the Guardian theatre critic for 48 years. And at the Times, for six years before that, he was an aisle squatter, as he likes to call it, for 54 years. And not just any theatre critic, he was the theatre critic. The one that everybody in the profession in the UK, for sure, read religiously. Every morning, everyone would want to know what Michael Billington thought of the show. Well, I can tell you what Michael Billington thought of the last 54 years because we have such a fantastically exhaustive and enjoyable look back over his extraordinary life and what he conservatively estimates is 10,000 nights in the theatre. Please join me next week for my chat with Michael Billington. Um, thank you so much to my producer, the brilliant Ben Backhouse. Thanks to the musicians, Iggy and Phoebe Cake, for the theme tune. Thank you to the stage manager. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you again to Emily Mortimer, Alessandra Nivola. Please join me next week. You won't regret it, I think. Michael has had an amazing life. And to get the view from the other side, from the uh, from the police side of the stalls as opposed to the outlaws on stage is fascinating. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Seems plain sad and fun. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.